Our scripture text this morning is Matthew 12, verses 14 through 21. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from them, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant who I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. I think most of you, or at least many of you, know that Carol and I served overseas uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, working with refugees, people coming out of the former Soviet bloc countries and introducing them to the gospel and trying to serve them in the various ways that we could. And when we were preparing to go overseas, our expectations were such that, you know, there'd be some struggles perhaps, uh, but mostly it was going to be all good. We kind of thought we'll go to Austria, the Julie Andrews will be there at the airport and she'll lead us and the hills will be alive with all kinds of singing and it was going to be wonderful that we'd migrate into the culture well and identify with people. We thought it was going to be really uh, some bumps maybe, but all on the whole it was going to be kind of wonderful because God's going before us. Well, uh, it didn't turn out that way actually, right out of the gate. It was like a four-stop airplane travel through we ended up in Hungary for half a day, kind of surrounded by guards before then flying back into Austria. Didn't have a place to live. Had to stay in an empty apartment in Austria. Of course, the apartments are just really, it was all stone. There was a kitchen, but it only had a frying pan. There was no heat. There were no furniture. We were on mattresses, huddled around two, uh, you know, kind of uh, portable heaters. We got the flu. We all were sick didn't have vehicle. It was just an unmitigated disaster. Our expectations were over here, and the reality of it was over here. And I'll tell you, it really did a number on our faith. Our marriage was pressed. The parenting was difficult. Everything was made very, very difficult. And you know this. When you have certain expectations, and they don't meet themselves out as you expect them to be, it's a struggle. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. You begin to wonder whose side is God on. Why isn't he here? And why hasn't God come to our aid? And why is it so difficult? And you kind of see that, that same thing. And, and you know, it's, it's expectations for marriage, for parenting, for friendships, whatever. And you kind of see this expectational trial in our passage today. We're stepping out of Genesis for two weeks just to prepare for Easter. Uh, this is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the week before Jesus dies. He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. And people's expectations were high. I mean, they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're, expect they're expecting this Davidic Savior coming in. Victory, hope, salvation. Push the Romans and their oppressive regime off of our backs. They had high expectations. They were singing songs, they were celebrating, it was going to be a great week. Uh, as you go out through this week, though, as you attend with us on Thursday and Friday, you find out that the week was not marked by celebrations and victories, but by desertion and by betrayal and ultimately by death, by crucifixion. What happened? I mean, what happened? Well, they had certain expectations. 
about who this Jesus was, who this Messiah was. And he didn't meet him, and it was real trouble. I, I think it is in many ways that simple. It was that difficult. And so Matthew, the passage that I chose, he's trying to set our expectations right. He's trying to say this is who Jesus It's very counterintuitive. When we go through this passage, it won't accord with what we often think of as Jesus. But Matthew reveals Jesus to be very different than they and I think we often expect. And so I just want to kind of go through uh, how Jesus, why he has come. And to try to, at each juncture, there's three parts to this sermon, at each part, how do you view Jesus? I mean, do you see him as Matthew is revealing him? And, and, and what adjustment do you need to make? Because we thought, well, he's going to come as a king, but he ends up coming as a servant. Who wants to be a servant, right? Who wants to be the help? And, and we thought he'd come with power and victory and immediately bring justice, and yet, he no, he comes in a really gentle almost imperceptible manner. And, and we thought the, the victory would be for Israel. This is what they're thinking. And yet he's come to be the hope among the nations. And there's going to be a victory, but in a really backward kind of way. So th there's adjustments to our expectations. So look at me first at him coming as a servant, a chosen servant. Look at me at 14 to 18. Let me just... Read these briefly. It says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him. Let that sink in your minds right now. They, these religious leaders, these godly people are figuring out how can we crush him so that uh, we religious people recognize there but for the grace of God go I. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fill, fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Now, you see, Jesus is aware of their conspiring against him. We don't know. We're not told how he knows that. Could have been prior knowledge. Could have been omniscient. We don't know. But we just know that he is aware of it, and he withdraws. He doesn't withdraw because he's scared or in fear. He withdraws because he wants to carry on his ministry. And Jesus knows full well that he's going to suffer and die. Seventeen times between our passage and the crucifixion, Jesus speaks to his suffering and death. He knows it's coming, but it will come in his time. It's not going to come in their time. And so he withdraws to continue this ministry of preaching the gospel and healing. And you see that those who went with him were healed. It says all were healed. It, not like the TV preachers of our day where some may be healed. All were healed. Jesus never attempted a healing, and it didn't stick. He healed all of them. But notice that he then says, don't tell anybody. This is what theologians call the Messianic secret. He says, don't tell anybody. Now, why is he doing this? I mean, I would think, I mean, trying, I've been in business for a few years. Hey, do some healings, draw a crowd, give the message. It's a great way to build a group together. Get a grassroots kind of organization going. Do some healing, do some preaching, you're great to go. He, he doesn't do it that way. He's, he's a servant. He doesn't use miracles for that purpose. I think this is really what brought some of the opposition from these religious leaders. It, he's not coming powerful 
He's not coming in this dominant, forceful way as we think works. He comes in this servant way. He's a servant. This is, I think, what Matthew's point he's driving at. They expected this kind of powerful, strong, forceful, politically-minded, geopolitically-minded leader coming, and he just comes to serve. And he's serving is by preaching the gospel. How foolish is that? If you're going to get something going, just preaching, really? And, and preaching and healing, even. But Matthew shows us this is why he came. He came to be a servant. So Matthew quotes Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah has four servant songs. And in these servant songs, God is promising to the nation of Israel, you are way, way from the path of righteousness. I'm going to send a servant, and this servant's going to save you. So these were the promises. Now in Isaiah 42, it's the first of the servant songs. And, and, and what Isaiah is doing is he's condemning the leadership of Israel, saying, you are failed servant leaders. And he says, this is my chosen servant. This is my servant, chosen and loved. So God is putting his, his servant because they failed. Matthew is drawing that from Isaiah, and he's saying to the current leadership, these Pharisees, these leaders, he says, you failed. This is to fulfill God's promise to send a servant. Matthew's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42. He's my servant chosen. I mean, think about God saying that. God says he's my servant. I mean, out of all the identifications you could give to Jesus, coming to redeem a world, and you call him a servant. He's a servant, unlike failed Israel, unlike failed Adam. He's the second Adam, and now he's coming to serve, but to serve righteously and obediently. This is why he's beloved. That word's only used a few times. It's used of God for Jesus. He does it as his baptism. When Jesus is going out into ministry, he's going to do that work, and he does it at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son, listen to him. When you see the law and the prophets come together and all of, God's, all of God's redemptive purposes now sit on Jesus, he's beloved. Listen to him. He's the one, he's my chosen servant. He's not chosen from among many good leaders. He's chosen from eternity. Only Christ can do this. And he is the delight of the Father. God delights his whole soul delights in, in other words, all of God delights in the Son who's carrying out the plan to bring justice to the nations. It's an incredible picture. Do, are you, do you find yourself right now amazed that he would come as the help? Do, do you find him amazed that he would come to serve? Are, are you shocked in our celebrity culture that he would come at such a kind of a, a low role? Are, are you overwhelmed by his humility? You know, the warning really here is to the religious because they have expectations and they weren't met. And they turn, the antagonism doesn't come from the sinner, the prostitute, and the tax collector. It comes from the godly. They're the ones bringing antagonism because he hasn't met their expectations. You know, we as Christians, I think we, we are in danger of buying into a celebrity culture, of buying into kind of a triumphalistic. If we don't have power, uh, then we feel displaced. We don't do well in the minority. We want to make sure and be in the halls of power to make sure that our rights are observed. And yet he just comes as a servant. 
subject to everybody. He's just a servant in a backwater town. That's how he comes to save. I think sometimes many of us find ourselves struggling with Christ because he doesn't meet our expectations. You may be in a jam, a physical jam, sickness. He hasn't done what you've asked him to do. He hasn't healed you. Or you're in a marital or a, a, a relational struggle or a job situation or financial trouble. And, and you ask him to help. Because many people have said to me, hey, I asked. He didn't do it. So I, I'm not going to believe in him. In other words, it's this walking away, maybe not full disbelief, but a distancing from Jesus because he hasn't done what you've wanted him to do. You had a certain expectation on him, and he didn't meet it. At least he didn't meet it in the time and the way you asked for it, and so you kind of just take a couple steps back. We all are in danger of having the same struggle that they did in this, in this time of our text. We have certain expectations. He came to serve. He came in a very humble way. Not as a king, not as a sovereign, but as a servant. And we have to adjust to that. We have to adjust our expectations. But not only did he come as a servant, you see that he came very gentle. Look with me at 19 and 20. He didn't come in the way of the world. He says, he will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, he will not break a smoldering wick. He will not quench. You know, the way the world does things is, is numbers are power, and certain positions have power, and so we move in power. That's the way we do it. We want to get a critical mass working and then bring it to bear. And if we have enemies, we want to cause them to cease. We want to dominate. Jesus doesn't come that way. He comes in a very gentle, not powerful, and he doesn't come to destroy his enemies. He comes to heal them, to restore them. This is different than the way we do it. I mean, think about it for a minute. Just note his gentleness with me. When it says he doesn't quarrel, he doesn't cry out in the streets. In other words, even, even in the manner of his speech, he's not argumentative. He's not pressing a point. He doesn't have to get you to see what he wants you. He doesn't do it that way. He's not this powerful attorney-type cross-examining you know, coming to get you to see that he's right. He doesn't cry out. He's not shouting over people. And not like our modern political debates where they're just kind of shouting over each other. Nobody really hears anything. You don't even hear him in the streets. He's very tender. Persuasive, no doubt, but tender and gentle in his speech. Think about the way we engage one another sometimes when we want to make our point. And we think that decibels are equivalent to persuasion. Some pulpits need to hear this, no doubt about that. But a lot of our relationships do. We, we think, our, you know, our voice goes up, our posture gets firm, we begin bringing it down harder. But he doesn't cry out. He doesn't need to. I, I wonder why we feel we need to. But his, his, his manner is gentle. Notice it says that, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. A, a reed, think of a reed in some marsh. They, they were used common, you know, pens, flutes, measuring sticks. They were used for all kinds of things. And they were very common, they were very cheap. So if one was bruised or kind of partially broken, you just throw it away. Go get another reed. It, it's no big deal. It is really, really immaterial. But he doesn't break the reed. He's so gentle. 
but not just that, a smoldering wick. You know, you think of a wick and a candle, right? Uh, back then, they would just use a piece of cloth, and they would put it in, and of course, it would be drawing from the oil, and, and the, the cloth would be drawing the oil and putting out a flame. But when it's smoldering, it's really at its smallest place, and, and it begins to smoke because it's too close to the oil, and it doesn't really put out light. And so what you do is you pull it out and you discard it. It's a smaller, it's a nuisance to us. So you just go get another piece of cloth. Uh, very cheap, very easy. And so he chooses these two metaphors. And Isaiah said, no, this servant, this Jesus, is going to not break a bruised reed and not. His gentleness will be so much that even when he passes by that little flame, it won't quench it. He's speaking about Jesus' care for the, for the broken, the, those that we have very little. We look at them as very little value. They have no productive value. They can't do what we need them to do. They can't be part of advancing the kingdom we want to advance. They're, they're really undistinguished, bottom-tier people. Maybe they're uneducated. Maybe they don't have positions of authority that we can tap into to advance whatever agenda we have. He chooses to not break, to not discard, to not get rid of those. I mean, think about that for a minute. Is that not good news? That he doesn't discard those, those relationships that we have. Maybe they've turned, they've gone a little sour. They haven't produced for us. They can't do for us what we thought they could do. They're not there for us like we wanted them to be. We're just going to discard and move on. We'll get other friends. He doesn't do that. His gentleness. Think about even us, because if you're thinking so-and-so needs to hear this, that might be implicating you. He doesn't discard us. Those of us who struggle with, we can't seem to get our devotional life down, we can't seem to fight these sins that we need to fight, we, we don't have an increasing love for God, we don't feel like we're as good as everybody else in the church, and, and, and we just find ourselves just ratcheting down the ladder in terms of our own self-loathing, he doesn't discard us. We're ready to kick ourselves to the curb. He doesn't do that. I love what Charles Spurgeon, when he preached this passage, he said these words, he says, Some of God's children are made strong to do mighty works for him. God has his Samsons here and there who can pull up Gaza's gates and carry them to the top of the hill. But the majority of his people are a timid, trembling race. They are like starlings, frightened at every passerby. A little fearful flock. If temptation comes, they're taken away like birds in a snare. If trial threatens, they're ready to faint. Their frail skiff is tossed up and down by every wave. They are drifted along like a seabird on the crest of the billows. They are weak things without strength, without wisdom, without foresight. And yet weak as they are, and because they are so weak, they have this promise made specially to them. How it opens to us the compassion of Jesus, so gentle, tender, considerate. We never, never shrink back from his touch. We never need fear a harsh word from him. Though he might well chide us for our weakness, he rebukes not. Bruised reeds shall have no blows from him, and the smoldering flax no dampening frown. This is the, this is the way Christ has come. Are you not overwhelmed by his gentleness? Particularly for those of you right now, you just feel like a spiritual zero. Or you feel like a failure. Or you get up, you go down. You get up, you fall down. This is for you. To not, he wants to draw us by. Think about the parents of those that may have children, <clears throat> that have unique needs. 
struggles, difficulties, hardships, whether it be of a physical, emotional, and intellectual, they may, don't they receive special care? And don't the parents, don't the parents take special care of them? Doesn't he take care of us? Those of us who are struggling, hardship? Let this Jesus draw you in. As opposed to you or I looking at ourselves, we measure up. And, and we just feel ourselves kind of pulling away from him. No, run to him. Go to him. He's, he's, he's come. If your expectations are, he's up there and he's got a list. And he's recording like Santa when you've done everything right or wrong. You need to change your understanding of this, of this Messiah. He, a bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not, he is not that way. So if that's your picture, powerful Fortune 500 CEO, get the job done, runs you over if you're going too slow, that's not this one. It's not him. You need to change your expectations. You may find yourself being drawn to him. And then the third thing we see. So he's a chosen servant. We see that he's a humble. He, he, he ministers in an extraordinarily humble way. And, and that's this part that I just finished, that, that bruised reed. I mean, some of, some of us here, we really need to drink deeply from this truth. Because I, I hate the burden that we place on ourselves for our failures, which draws us away from them when it should be drawing us to them. Seems just absolutely backwards. The third thing we see is that he brings hope to the nations. He brings hope to the nations. You know, his gentle manner doesn't diminish his success. His gentle, sweet, soft manner, it will not injure his effectiveness. Uh, look with me at 18 as God begins to give him the plan. He says, I'll put my spirit upon him and he'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So your mind right now is thinking back to the baptism. He's there. The Spirit comes upon him. God gives him his Spirit to equip him to do the ministry of proclaiming justice. So what does this mean? What does it mean that he will proclaim justice? Because in our minds right now, we're very, very justice-minded, right? Social justice, racial justice, gender justice. We have all kinds of justices that were. Is this what he's doing? Is Jesus woke? I mean, is he proclaiming justice? He wants us to, to get on board with how justice ought to look in all the structures of life? Well, I think those are fine discussions to have. But I think he's speaking about something far greater than that. It includes those things. But, but it's not simply racial. It's not simply economic justice. No, 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 it's a cosmic justice. When he proclaims justice to the nations, I think what he's doing is he's bringing order to all the disorder that sin has brought to us. It's something far greater. He's, he's bringing about God's redemptive plans. God had intended from the beginning to restore all of fallen humanity, and he's now going to cause that to happen. He's going to proclaim justice, not just Israel, to the nations. So all of creation is going to be redeemed, restored, brought to judgment and justice, so you think about the ravages of sin. You think about what Genesis 3, we just read it last week. We saw what it did to us. Physically, we're getting older, diseased, we're dying. Every one of us will die. No one will live forever. The effects of sin has taken place 
fully in our physicality. We, each one of us in here, we will die. Socially, we have greed. We have, we have racism. We have um, conflict in our homes. We, you know, kind of blame shifting, excuse making, have trouble accepting responsibility. Spiritually, we're disordered. We don't even understand God fully. We run away from God. We don't draw near to God. You know, you think about all the ravages of sin. Jesus has come to put those in order. Ray Ortland said it this way. He says, when you see the poverty, the corruption, the deceit, the abuse of humans, you're seeing the disordering or injustice of God's creation. This is the reason that legislation, political parties, time, education, money will never be able to straighten out the disorder of our world. You think of a Putin. Are we shocked? I mean, really, just read history. And, and if, if Christ Jesus tarries for another ten generations, you'll see him again. It, it's a, there is no educational, there's no time, there's nothing. Christ had to come to proclaim justice, to bring about all things. You say, where is it? Well, it's already here in Christ. That's the purpose of his ministry of miracles. You know, when he takes a deaf man and, and he and he makes it so he can hear. He's bringing order to disorder. That was not part of the ordered creation that God made. When he takes a blind woman and he gives her sight, he's bringing order. When the demonized are cleansed, when the sick are healed, when the dead are raised, all those miracles were intended to give us a foretaste. This is the kingdom. I'm reordering things. I'm bringing things back to what God intended them to be. It's already happened. You read it through these biographies, these narratives of Jesus' ministry. Now, it's not yet here in its fullness, but we see it expanding. We're believers here in America from a preacher in the Middle East 2,000 years later. This is what theologians call already and not yet. Jesus has come already and established his kingdom. It's not yet in its fullness. But you see that it will be, because notice in 20 and 21, in 18, he says, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He speaks about the manner of it in 19 and 20. And then he says, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Until. Tells us there's an interval of time. That, that the proclaiming of justice, the proclaiming of the gospel, of being reconciled to God, will go until, until there's an interval, until he brings justice and the nations, all the nations, not just Israel will be saved, all the nations will have hope in his name. In other words, this idea that, that he will achieve justice. It will happen. It'll happen. This, this complete ordering, the complete redemption, all of God's redemptive plans, with the lion will lay down with the lamb, all that will happen. Death in Isaiah 28. Death will be destroyed. The promise back in Isaiah. It'll be fulfilled. All those things will happen. For those who hope in his name. To hope in his name means to see Jesus as the hope of reconciliation with God. The hope of our, of our world to be reconciled. The world's groaning. Our hope is in Christ to bring about that redemption. Not in a new political party. Not in a new ideology. Not in a new philosophy in life. Our hope is in Christ, Jesus, who will bring about these things until he finishes. Now, how does he do it, though? 
Well, again, this is the encounterintuitive. This is where I'm asking you to adjust your minds. How does he do it? Well, he comes as a man. I mean, this is a crazy thing about the incarnation. He takes flesh, and he lives among us. I mean, what king or president lives in your neighborhood? None of them do, and they'll never do it. But he comes and lives in our neighborhood. He's like us in every way. He comes among us as a servant, not a king, not with the pomp and the circumstance of what royalty ought to bring. He comes like us. But not only does he come like us, he's humble and gentle. He doesn't come powerful. But he brings justice ultimately through his own death. This is, this is the foolishness of the gospel that Paul spoke about. That Jesus, instead of coming and crushing the wicked, as you or I might be apt to do if given the ability, he's crushed by the wicked. He's crushed. Instead of crushing, he's crushed. That's not what they expected. The Messiah, the powerful one, is going to lay down his life so as to redeem a people who should be crushed? It doesn't make sense. That's why you don't, well, I always say to you, you don't make this stuff up. If you're going to come up with a religion, you're going to put yourself in a king position and a powerful position. You're not going to put yourself in a servant position, gentle, being crushed by the opposition. But in being crushed, life comes. Why? Because he takes our curse, the curse from three, he takes our shame, our guilt, all of our sins, the ones you're going to commit in 30 minutes from now. He takes all those sins and the shame associated with them, and he makes justice with the Father so that you and I can be legitimately forgiven. So that God won't be a black and He won't be black and white. No, he'll be just. And he's the justifier of those with faith in the one that we're supposed to put our hope in. This is the beauty of what Matthew's, Matthew's trying to say. No, this is the Jesus that has come to save. This is the one that came from heaven. Remember the flaming sword and the angel? We can't get back in the garden. One had to come out of the garden to us. This is the one who came. He's a servant. He's humble and gentle. He's going to be crushed, but in his crushing, he's going to give life. This is what we have to get our mind around. This incredible Messiah. Blair asked me if I'm excited to preach the passage. I love talking about Christ. He's so beautiful. He's, so, he's a delight. He's a delight to the Father. I, I hope he's a delight to you. I, I hope you delight in him. You marvel over him. What do we do with this? Well, well let, let's just, as a people, I'm going to give you a bunch of things to think about. I don't want you to do everything I tell you. I'm just saying, I'm going to give you a bunch of different ideas, and if one or two lock, great. But, but the first thing is, let's look at this as kind of a warning. Let's not misdiagnose our problem. You know, when Jesus came, they saw Rome as the issue. They were oppressive regime in their own country. I get that. We have oppressive regimes in our world. That's not the main problem. We don't want to misdiagnose what God has to do to save. Or we think maybe, maybe if it's not at a geopolitical level, maybe the big problem is the person that I'm married to or the friend that I have or the people I work with. You do know that we can look with laser accuracy at the sins of our spouse and friends and miss our own. We'll admit that we have sins, but we'll find them manageable. And they're not that bad, not compared to theirs. This is misdiagnosing the problem. If you think that others need to... Do you see yourself as a bruised reed? Do you see yourself as a smoldering wick? 
Do you see yourself that way? Many of us don't. And this is the greatest threat. The greatest threat is we're going to hear this message and, and he's not going to meet our expectations because we don't think we need this kind of savior. And, and I would simply call you to repent. Repent of your religion. And when I say that, what I mean by this is many, many of us over the years, religion has a way of cleaning us up, kind of making us a little more fit for, for general consumption. And we begin to look at our lives and how they've changed and we almost find ourselves as, as if we're commendable to God. We would admit that we're not as bad as other people. We, we would admit that we're not as good as Mother Teresa's, but we are definitely better than the others. If you think that you're going to commend yourself to God by who you are or what you've done, that's the problem these leaders had. So heed the warning. If you've seen yourself as growing and ability to be acceptable to God you don't see that you're the broken reed the smoldering you need to repent of that because it won't save you otherwise he wouldn't have been sent he would have just sent us educational reform better theological teachers better preachers to get the point across to get you to change so that's the warning secondly there's the invitation the invitation is that if you do consider if you look at yourself really and honestly you stand in front of the mirror and, and you really, you don't look at the posts on Facebook. You just look at who you really are and you see yourself as a bruised reed and you see yourself as a smoldering wick and you cast yourselves upon Christ. He'll receive you. And that's what I want you, that's what I want us all to do. For some of us, it may be the first time. That's what justification is. You come to Christ and you throw yourself at his mercy. Please forgive me. Receive me. Let me, let me follow you. Give me the grace to be saved. But, but, but even those of us who are in the faith, we still need to see ourselves in this way. That's why we, see, <clears throat> that's why we sing this song, this song, Come Now, Ye Sinners. Listen to what you're saying. Let not conscience make you linger. In other words, some of us, we feel so guilty, we feel so dirty, that we linger thinking, I want to clean up a little bit before I go to God. That is not the biblical way. Take yourself and your sin and run to him. That's what you're called to do because he's gentle and humble. The song goes, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't dream that you're going to somehow become more fit so that you will be commendable to God. It won't happen. He says all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. In other words, that's the ticket. When you begin to see, wow, I am that way, then go to him. So, so Richard Sibbs was a great preacher of the 17th century. He was a Puritan. And he wrote a whole book on Isaiah 42.3, on this bruised reed smoldering work. Many of you have read it. He says, are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him. Go to Christ. There is more mercy in him than there is sin in you. So, so th this is God just parting the river for us to go, to go to him. So, so there's an invitation. Thirdly, would you marvel with me over him? When I say marvel, I mean contemplate, think about, dwell upon. Uh, don't just give him a flash thought, but think on him. Think on him who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is not done our day and age we're scrolling all the time we're not stopping and thinking we're not pondering we're not considering we're not meditating may i ask you to consider to do that don't scrutinize him 
Just ponder him. And don't equate your growing knowledge of him with growing affections. They should be together, but they're often not. Many of us grow in knowledge, but we don't grow in love and delight. And they would also say, engage those who are uh, smoldering and those who are bruised. Many of our friend groups look just like us. To what degree are we running away or not engaging in those that are maybe more difficult? They may be more needy. They have greater issues. They're more of a drain. You know, even some of our books on discipleship, it's like, no, you get the fast movers and you tag them and, and you train them. What about those that are maybe not as easy to deal with? Do they occupy any of the circles of your life? I mean, if he's inviting us that way, shouldn't we be inviting them to us? And then, and then bring justice to the nations. What do I mean by that? I simply mean this. Bring, we may not fix all the systemic issues we have in our culture, but at least in our spheres of influence, at work, at home, in our community. When I say bring justice, I mean just bring order. Like repent. If you're in conflict, then repent of your part and seek reconciliation. This idea of justice is proclaiming the gospel, not just bringing order to our life, but even bringing order to the lives of others. Proclaiming Christ to others, you think, yeah, in our world with our problems, is that really going to help? That's just some spiritual kind of, you know, no, we got more problems, Tom. Just preaching Jesus isn't going to fix it. Well, it fixed my life. I mean, my life was, was very disordered before I came to Christ. I came to Christ, a lot of good order came. I mean, I mean my life changed. I, I'm here today, all these years later. From that, it, it changed dramatically. So yeah, I think it's very practical to remind people to pursue Christ. There's a sense of well-being, order, peace that comes to us. I'm a testimony, and you can talk, talk to, about the regenerating effects of the Spirit of God bringing me from chaos to order, my own life. And I know for many of you, your lives as well. There's much to ponder in Christ. Here we stand at the precipice of this holy week, this week of, of Thursday. Matthew will be preaching about the, the Last Supper, about the night before he died. Philip's going to be preaching on Good Friday about this, these last words of Christ. It's all getting us ready so we can see the darkness, even feel the darkness, so that Sunday when we speak about, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It will be so palpably satisfying for you. So we have a great Savior here. He's alone worthy of our contemplation. So let's ask God now, just silently ask God. Perhaps you need to be admonished. Carol and I, when we walk every Saturday before Sunday, we pray for this time they're about to have. You're probably going to get about 30 seconds. But we pray that the Spirit of God would land on you to bring about admonishment or encouragement or help or strength. I ask God, if he can say, let there be light and there's light, then we can take 15 to 30 seconds, and God will do a sanctifying, or for some of you, if you're not a Christian, a justifying work in you, bringing you to himself through faith. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.